So um, just a, a quick preface, uh, preface note. Uh, Chad and I have talked quite a bit over the last nine months to a year about how when we preach on Fridays, we're pretty convinced that uh, we are most comfortable with preaching from a text. And so we went through Ephesians, we went through Daniel, now we're going through Exodus, and we're going to be going through James. And, and, and we, we have the text in front of us, and we are teaching from the text. And, and this, in a way, controls us. It keeps us from just spouting our own ideas about things. And even when we're in the middle of stuff, uh, like when Chad was uh, talking about the Lord's Prayer and when I was preaching from a passage in Luke, it was going from a text. Uh, and we, we feel like sermons should be that. Uh, at other times, men's meetings, women's retreat, youth, other things, there are times where it might be more appropriate uh, to, to do something else, not necessarily preach from a text, but to share what's stirring in our own heart, uh, stirring in our own minds, what, what God has been showing us in, in other things. And um, that's kind of like what we're doing with the cardinal virtues. When we're going through the virtues, we're talking about something that has a long tradition in the church. And so this is a little bit more of that. It's not preaching from a text, but more conveying an idea. And what I wanted to do today to start uh, is refresh a teaching that I gave almost two years ago on acedia. Anybody remember hearing? Raise your hand if you remember the teaching on acedia. Okay, quite a few. And uh, so that was October 2020. So it's been almost two years since, since I gave that teaching, and I wanted to refresh it and sharpen it a little bit and then uh, talk about something else related to it. So I want to start. This is a definition of acedia. This is by a, a professor named R.J. Snell. This is how he describes acedia. He says, Acedia, the noonday demon, so-called since it strikes in the tedium of the afternoon, gives a surprising amount of attention in early monastic literature. This demon is described as follows. He causes the monk continuously to look at the windows and forces him to step out of his cell and to gaze at the sun to see how far it still is from the ninth hour and to look around here and there whether any of his brethren is near. Moreover, the demon sends him hatred against the place, against life itself, and against the work of his hands. Sloth, which is another word for acedia, is not laziness, although the term in time does come to mean mere inactivity. Rather, it reveals frustration and hate, disgust at place and life itself. In acedia, the monk abhors what God has given, namely reality and the limits of order, especially the limits of one's own selfhood. So imagine being a monk and making a commitment, a lifelong commitment to spend your life in a monastic order, to go away, to be with God in solitude, in the community of others, and yet the whole time you're just constantly agitated, you're looking for something to do, you're looking for, some, some, for people to be around, you're wondering when the next hour is or when the next meal is, and you come to hate the place that you have given yourself to, and you come to hate the community that you're a part of. That's what acedia does to somebody. And so I think it's mischaracterized a lot of times. When you hear the word acedia, we think laziness. And it's just laziness and it's shirking responsibility, but it goes much deeper than that. It's not just that. The person that's afflicted by acedia is discontent with life as it is. 
discontent with life as it is. And not discontent in the good sense of seeing where something is off and saying, okay, this needs improvement. I, I need to address this area. But discontent that his life is his life. That's what Asidia does to somebody, where they become discontent that his life is his life. And so I see my life. I see what I've been given. I see the ground that God has given me to take care of. And I'm disappointed and I'm restless and I really want something else. So for me, this would be seeing my life as family, work, and church. These are the three these are the three big circles of my life, family, work, and church. Uh, not in any particular order. I guess I would probably say family, church, and work would, would be the, the most logical order. This takes up 99% of my life. This little center circle here is like where I take a shower and, and run. <laughs> okay? The rest of life really is family, work, and church. And so for me, it would be seeing that and being discontent. With it, And not discontent as far as saying, you know, um, I could improve my relationship with Dawn if, if I did these things, or I could serve my home group better if I practiced this. I could make things better at work if, if I did this. That's good discontentment. We're, we are to have that kind of discontentment. What I'm talking about is seeing my life in these three circles and responding to it with sadness, that that's what it is. And I don't think we would ever audibly or even mentally say this, but if it were articulated, it would be something like, I wish I had some other life. I feel so limited with this one, and I dread my day-to-day life. Adam Whitbeck and I, have been, we've been talking about the phenomenon of the midlife crisis. Um, not because either one of us are, are having one, as far as I can tell. Um, but we're talking about it with its link to acedia, okay? And so, you know, for the first half of our lives, um, we have a lot of milestones that, that we experience and, and things that we look forward to, things that we achieve. And so this, this is kind of what's represented here. Um, you know, you, you graduate high school, graduate college, first job, first wife, well, first, get married. Get married. Yeah. It says get married. First house. First child. Maybe a second degree. More kids. Better job. Bigger house. Maybe start a business. Start sending kids to college and so on. Now, not everybody follows that path, but everybody follows some version of it where there are milestones in life. And, and we're always kind of reaching toward that next milestone. And what happens is somewhere around 35 to 50, somewhere in there, you start, the milestones start slowing down and you don't have quite as many. Or when you do reach those milestones, they don't mean quite as much as they used to mean when you were first achieving all those milestones. And you start to look at the next 30 or 40 years, and you don't see much in the way of milestones. And the life that you have is pretty much the life that you're going to have until the end, in a lot of ways, until you get to this last milestone represented by the cross, where you go to be with Jesus. And a lot of men look at that, 
and they, they get to that 35 to 40 and they, and they look at how life is probably going to be the rest of the way and they think, I thought it would be better. I thought it would be better. I thought it would be something else. And I don't want my best striving to be here. I want my best striving to be somewhere else. And I, I don't think this is why, this is not necessarily, I'm just saying everybody who gets a second degree or something like that is, is striving for another milestone. But sometimes it's just the quest to, to be able to achieve something, you know. And a lot of guys look at that and they say, I don't want my best striving to be there. And I don't want to stay trapped in my life as it is and as it's going to be. And so sometimes a, a lot of men lunge toward novelty, you know, and, and something new. And so that's kind of the, the stereotypical midlife crisis, getting a, a new flashy car or a new flashy girlfriend or wife or a change in religious beliefs. You know all the tropes, right? Uh, Professor Snell says, Acedia rejects the burden of order. Choosing instead the breezy lightness of freedom. So somebody who's deeply afflicted with a CD, especially in kind of this midlife crisis range, really wants the breezy lightness of freedom and detachment and not being committed to things. Other men who don't actually, you know, acquire something new just live in perpetual resentment of what their life is and what their life is going to be. And they check out of their own life and they just kind of become a ghost to themselves and to other people. But acedia doesn't just afflict guys at midlife. Uh, you can be a college student or you can be a young adult and you can be just as disinterested in your own life. Um, spending hours gaming or on YouTube, whatever will deflect your attention from your life as it really is in the details. Another theologian refers to acedia as a dull resignation, a dull resignation to a life without the friendship of God, a dull resignation to a life without the friendship of God. And that's, that's in an article that's called Pornography and Acedia by a theologian named Reinhard Hutter. And you don't have to think too hard about how the discontent of Acedia and the desire for novelty leads to that particular vice. You know, that, you don't have to take a lot of steps to figure out how that works. So here's some characteristics of acedia, and you can, you can think about your own life and see if, if, uh, if you've ever run into this or maybe you're in it now. Some characteristics. My mind is sluggish and inattentive to what is going on around me. I don't look forward to gathering with the church, and, and often I have to be poked and prodded to go. It's a chore to read scripture. Don't enjoy it. Don't look forward to doing it. I barely pray if I pray at all. I want my time back from my commitments and obligations. I kind of resent the commitments and the obligations that I have. I'm bored with the members of my community, church. And that makes me think of switching where I live or switching home groups or even switching churches. Instead of delighting in the people around me, I constantly find fault with them, all the ways that they, they fail me. I feel restless, and I can't stay anywhere for very long. I'm constantly just flitting from thing to thing. The person afflicted with acedia lunges after novelty, dissatisfied with the present. And that's why I think, uh, we talked about this a little bit a couple of months ago when, when we were talking about temperance, the virtue of temperance. 
that constant phone checking and internet refreshing could be a symptom of acedia. They could signal a wish that there was something more interesting going on than what's going on around me presently. So if if you're in the habit of constantly refreshing your phone, checking your phone, refreshing the internet, it could be stemming from a wish that there was something more interesting going on around me. Because I might not be able to control what's going on in my life necessarily, but I can control my entertainment. Whatever's going on around me, I can always pick this thing up and find something to do. I can refresh it and see if there's anything new that I'd be interested in. And if I'm anxious because I have this dull resignation of a, a life without the friendship of God, I can pick up my phone, I can refresh my browser, and I can take control over where my attention goes. And I can make it go there. I can stop paying attention to what I perceive to be boredom or something I don't want to give myself to, and I can put my attention somewhere else where I want it to be. And then my attention goes to this unnecessary text conversation or this video or this updating feed, you know, whatever it is, and not the ground of my own life, not the things that really that I'm given to. Uh, Through our devices, our culture of death says, you don't have to stand for this, whatever it is that's going on around you. You can transcend it. Be entertained. Your boring old life will be there when we're done, but we'll always be here for you. You can always turn to your devices. Asidia looks at God's gracious gifts and only sees sadness. And says to God, you're asking too much of me. I can't do it and I won't try. You're asking too much of me and I'm not going to try. And as I said two years ago, the only way out of this condition, the only way out of these thoughts is is to recognize the thoughts and the patterns and the habits and the rejection of reality and to repent of it because it's a sin and you can repent of sin. And you can begin with God's help, the the grace and power of God to to walk back out of that condition. But it starts with repentance. You can't start walking the other way until you've recognized it and repented of it first. So the best thing you can do is to be honest with the Father about it, ask for forgiveness, and be honest with a trusted friend about it. That this this is the condition. This is where I am. This is where I've been. These are the thoughts that I'm having. These are the habits that I have. And uh, I don't want to be there anymore. I I repent of it. I want to walk back out of it. But I'm going to need help because it would be easy to fall back into this kind of thing. Does that make sense where we are in Acedia? I wanted to refresh that and sharpen it. So the opposite of Acedia is to see my life as an ongoing expression of love, mainly in these areas. For me, these three areas, I think for a lot of us, these are the three main areas of our lives. Um an ongoing expression of love. And it's to consciously attend to what's in front of me and not resent any of it, but to be glad that my life is my life in all its particulars. It's it's to burrow more deeply into the ground of my life rather than trying to escape from it. But there's more to countering acedia than just consenting to our lives and saying, okay, this is my life. There's more to countering acedia than that, just consenting to it. But we need to acquire the virtue. And again, what, what is a virtue? What, what's the kind of the shorthand term? Do you remember? Effortless good. The effortless good, that's right. We need to acquire the effortless good of something called magnanimity. 
And uh, remember the four cardinal virtues, which were prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, are they are the hinge on which all the other virtues turn. Okay, and magnanimity, the virtue of magnanimity, kind of falls under uh, temperance as far as the the four cardinal virtues falls under that. And the magnificent man reaches toward the great things that are proper for him to do. Okay, the magnificent man reaches toward the great things that are proper for him to do. The, the adjective can be either magnanimous or magnificent. I like magnificent better. It's a word we're more familiar with, okay? The, the great things that are proper for him to do. So there are a lot of great things that are out there that can be done, but not all of them are proper for me to do, okay? It would not be proper for me to try out for an NFL team, you know, just given my age and condition and all that, it wouldn't be proper, um, no matter how much of a lifelong dream it might have been, and it never was. Uh, a biblical example of magnanimity is Caleb, okay, in the book of Numbers. So Caleb's one of the 12 spies sent out to spy out the land. Ten spies brought back a bad report about the land. Only Joshua and Caleb didn't. And Caleb wouldn't have it. So Numbers 13.30 says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb says, Let's not wait. Let's not dither. Let's not make this a debate about whether we're going to go. The Lord's giving us this land. Let's go up at once. Let's go right now. Caleb is reaching toward the great purpose that God had given Israel to do. He says, let's go. Let's go now. Kind of a negative example, a counterexample is Barak in Judges chapter 4. So Deborah the judge first has to remind Barak that God has said for him to lead his men into battle against Sisera. God wants Barak to go. He wants him to reach toward this great thing that he has in mind for him to do. And Barak says, Barak says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So Barak shrinks back from the great purpose that God had for him. And he says, I, he says to Deborah, I will only go if you go with me. Um, I don't know if he's thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure God likes you and he's not going to kill you. So as long as I'm close to you, then I guess I'll be safe. But she agrees to go, but she says, okay, but you're not going to get any glory out of this. And he doesn't. In the the end, it's Jael who gets the glory. She's the one who kills Sisera. And I think, you know, I think Barak not getting the glory might be one of the reasons why in Judges 5, there's the song of Barak and Deborah. And Judges 5.21 has this great line, and I've referenced this before, but it's, march on my soul with might. It's just six, six words. March on my soul with might. This is the song of the magnificent. March on my soul with might. Something we can memorize and sing every day. But the man afflicted by Asidia won't strive toward the great purposes that God has for him. He'll keep the bar real low. He'll keep the bar low. But the magnificent man reaches toward the great things that are proper for him to do so. And for all of us, everybody in this room, 
The great things that God has for us are already right in front of us. They're already built into our lives. They are not out there somewhere. They're already right in front of us. And again, for me and for many of us, it's these three circles. It's family, work, and church. The problem is that the great things that we tend to dream about and reach toward often have little to do with the real ground of our lives. They usually have to do with a lack of responsibility, freedom to do as we want, unencumbered by any demands. That's what we think of when we think about great purposes. We think about, we think about freedom off somewhere. Now, if you're a husband, if you're a dad, your household is the place where you are to reach for great things. That's the place where I am to reach for great things. That's where I'm to exert my best creativity, my most diligent attention, and dream my greatest dreams right there in my own household. This is the ground that I'm supposed to make better. It's what God's given to me through my wife and my four kids. That's the ground that I'm supposed to make better. If you're a young person, your relationship with your parents and your siblings and your friends and your church members, or if you have a job, that's the real ground where you're to reach toward the great things that God has for you. Not the future as if the future were some mystical land that you're going to visit someday, as if life begins in the future at some point. Your life is right there right now. And the things around you, the people around you, that's the ground that you're supposed to make better if you're a young person. And that's the great purpose that God has for you that you're to reach toward. If you have a job, all of us, you know, a lot of us in the room have jobs. It means reaching toward mastering our job, doing our job to the very best of our ability. It means becoming the kind of person that other people want to work with and that that they're glad that we're on the team. And so when a big initiative gets handed down and people look around, okay, well, who's, who's going to be part of making this happen? And they look around and they say, oh, well, Jeff's on the team. That's good because that means this thing's going to go. This thing is not going to get bogged down. This thing's going to go. It's going to be successful because Jeff's on the team. You're in this church. And so being magnificent means reaching toward knowing others and being known by others and taking responsibility for others. You have to be somebody for all of us, and I have to be somebody for all of you. And that can't happen without stretching, without reaching toward the great things that are proper for us to do. Amen? Now, these things, again, family, work, and church, they may not always seem so magnificent to us, but in God's economy, they are. And that's all that really matters, right? Here are a couple of other characteristics of of the magnificent man. The magnificent man expects great things in the domains where he gives himself. So for me, family, work, and church, I am to expect great things in those those circles as I give myself to them, as as I work that ground. And so the question is, is my faith so small that I don't expect great things in my family? Do I not expect great things in the church? Or do I not expect great things in my work? The magnificent man doesn't complain because to complain would be to give evil a kind of victory over him by making him complain. 
To complain would be to give evil a kind of victory over him by making him complain. So there's the initial evil, the thing that's not good, the thing that would tempt me to complain. But it's a double defeat if I complain. Because there would be the bad thing and then there would be the fact that it made me complain about it. So the magnificent man doesn't complain. The magnificent man is self-controlled. This is why it falls under temperance. So he doesn't only complain, but he controls himself to stay hopeful. So again, looking at the, the aspects of our lives where maybe things are not quite as they should be. They need improvement. But the, the magnificent man controls himself to stay hopeful about them and doesn't fall into despair over them. He knows there's a Father in heaven in whom he is perfectly secure, and so he controls himself to stay hopeful. The magnificent man doesn't speak out of his emotion. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to James 3 and talk about taming the tongue. But the magnificent man doesn't speak out of his emotion. When we speak out of emotion, we say whatever is going on in our chaotic hearts. We say whatever is going on just because we want to say it because it would feel good to say it. And a lot of times afterward, we recognize it wasn't really true. I really didn't need to say it that way. I just said it because I was mad. Or I just said it because I was anxious or, or whatever. And I really shouldn't have said that or said it in that way because it wasn't true. And we often end up regretting it. Uh, we usually don't mean it. We just want somebody to validate our feelings when we speak out of emotion. But the magnificent man doesn't need that. The magnificent man doesn't need somebody to validate his emotions. And so he doesn't speak out of his emotions. The magnificent man is not given to drama. I think I've said before, drama takes a small thing, a relatively small thing, and blows it up out of proportion and drags other people into it, and it dominates what's going on. It's immature and it's unmanly, and the magnificent man doesn't need it. Drama is a signal that I've lost perspective, and I've lost the pursuit of being magnificent, and I've lost humility if I take something and I, and I make it all about me and what's going on around me. And finally, the magnificent man sees the need to take responsibility and says, I'll take care of it. Sees the need to take responsibility, knows he can do it, and says, I'll take care of it. May not know exactly how, but he'll look to God for help and proceed in faith. That's a magnificent man. So finally... I want to talk about working toward magnanimity, working toward acquiring magnanimity, what, what this reaching looks like as it develops in us, as it grows toward becoming an effortless good. And, and as I was working on this, I thought, you know, well, who am I to talk about this? Because I, am, I, am I would not say I am magnificent. I would not say I have attained the effortless good of, of magnificence. I thought, you know, should I even talk about this? And I thought, well, I talked about the other four cardinal virtues. Now I have those either, so I guess my, what's one more, right? This is, not, this is not purely my wisdom. I think this is accumulated wisdom over a long period of time in the life of the church. So uh, five, five things working toward magnanimity. The first one is to survey the ground of your life. What is the ground of your life? What are your circles? And again, for a lot of us, I think it's family, church, and work. But, but what are your circles? Reckon with that. You know, Walk the length and the breadth of it, as God told Abraham to do in Genesis 17. 
Walk through your life. What, what is the ground of your life? It might help to map it out, something like this, or even something more extensive. What are the, you know, what, what does it look like, particular to family? What are the different things? There's hus- you know, being a husband, being a father, and so on. The second one is to reckon with your life as it is. So this is not just noting what it is, but it means coming to terms and saying, yes, this, this is my life. And, and for those of us who are, you know, I don't know, either between 35 and 50 or, or over that, it means reckoning with, in large part, this is what my life is going to be for the rest of it, for the, as long as I go. And there may not be the kinds of milestones that there were earlier, that th- this is my life, I reckon with it, I'm not going to try to escape from it, I'm not going to try to inject novelty into it, but I'm going to till this ground as it is. Your life is not elsewhere, and your life is not in the future. It's, it's right here, right now. Number three, commit yourself to thoughtfully and energetically tending to the ground of your life. Okay? Commit to working the soil of your own life in all its facets. Resolve that instead of looking outward for the next exciting thing, that you'll look toward your responsibilities and you'll give them your best. So instead of looking outward, look Inward, not looking inward at yourself, but looking at what your actual, the, the givenness of your life, what it actually is. Number four, receive the gift of limits. Because when, when you reckon with your life as it really is, you're going to recognize that there are limits there. And there are some limits that, that will never be moved. They will always be there. And we tend to resist limits. We don't like limits. We like the idea of being able to always transcend our limits. We come to see limits as bad things that prevent us from doing what we really want. But limits provide the borders to our life so we can focus on what we've really been given. Okay? If you have, uh, you know, if you have 50 acres and you fence the 50 acres, well, the 50 acres is what you have to work with. And you can't go beyond the fence. It's not yours. And so... Limits, our limits, are good borders for us. And finally, number five, this is the one I'm going to spend the most time on, but this is, we're coming near the end, is to put yourself on the hook and come through. Okay, put yourself on the hook and come through. There's a, there's a guy in the New Testament who, whenever I read about him, I always feel sorry for. And it's not Judas, and it's not... <coughs> Peter getting rebuked and then denying Jesus. But it's, it's this guy, Archippus, in Colossians 4.17. It's just a blip at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. But every time I read it, I, I feel kind of bad for the guy. So Colossians 4.17 says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So those who heard the letter from Paul to the Colossians were to, when they saw Archippus, and it was probably read publicly in the church, they were to turn to him and say, see that you fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given you. Now, how would you like to be Archippus? And you have all the people in the church constantly saying the same thing to you, you know, to fulfill your ministry. And the church at Colossae was probably quite small. It was probably maybe even a house church in Philemon, um, we, it's possible that this was a house church. So it's not like you had everybody at Southland turn into some poor guy and saying, you know, see to it that you fulfill your ministry. 
I don't know if Archippus was, was zealous and, and agreed to, to undertake some kind of ministry and then just didn't do it, or if he was challenged to take on some kind of responsibility and didn't do it. But at some point, Archippus put himself on the hook to do some kind of ministry, and it seems like for whatever reason, he hadn't done it. And so Paul calls him out, kind of in an encouraging way. He calls him out by telling the church, hey, tell Archippus, see to it that you fulfill the ministry that you've been given. And I don't know if that was hard for Archippus, but, but Paul calls them to come around him and to kind of lift him up, to spur him, because he put himself on the hook and now he needs to come through. And one of the ways that we can grow in magnificence is to put ourselves on the hook and to come through. You can't just put yourself on the hook and then, and then not come through, but you've got to come through. So if, if you have kids in the Bible class, put yourself on the hook to take them through the weekly section, the readings, and, the, and what's going to be discussed in Bible class and talk to them about it. Put yourself on the hook for that. Uh, if there's a church need that you can take care of and you know that you can take care of it, put yourself on the hook to get it done. If at work... You just kind of sit back and let other people take the initiatives and take the assignments rather than than volunteering. Put yourself on the hook by volunteering to take an initiative. You don't have to take every one, but put yourself on the hook to take something and then see it through and do it. I want to close with this story um, about putting yourself on the hook. Uh, Many years ago, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, Pedro Basilia who is our, our pastor in, in Mexico, in Ayutla, uh, was having difficulty obtaining an extended visa to the States. And so he, he wasn't able to visit, and he wanted to come visit, but he couldn't get an extended visa. And so Billy sent a mass email, he sent it to, to all the churches, asking for help. And specifically, Billy wrote this. He wrote, we need someone who is aggressive, knowledgeable, and able to pursue all avenues to take on this project. If you are the kind of person who can say, I will get that visa, please drop me a line. And James Leitch, who is a magnificent man, who knew how to put himself on the hook and how to come through, replied first. And he replied with, I will get that visa. Please visit me in jail. And I think he did get it. So the quest for magnificence is not out there somewhere. We don't even really have to leave home. We don't have to leave the ground of our lives. They're right there. We just have to pursue it. Amen?